0: Praise God. He gives flight to the butterflies in our souls. It's him that soothes us and him that excites us. He spreads joy like rain inside us. <laughs> Does he not? And even when we're shattered, all our pieces fly to him. <laughs> it's just how the love relationship with the Lord is. Let me, just, let me just add to that prayer. Father, though these are only syllables, I pray that they would carry the weight of the secret kisses we have shared. All these words, they belong to you. And because you live, so they do. We worship you. Amen. Amen. Look at, uh, turn to Psalm 27. While you're turning there, I'll tell you what the Lord spoke to me while I was waiting on your behalf for what he wanted to share tonight. He quoted a scripture to me uh, out of 1 Samuel 13. He said, I have sought for myself a man after my own heart. (laughs) Listen to to everything that that implies. God says, I'm going to seek this out myself. And what I'm looking for is this man, a man who is after my heart. We started with after your heart tonight. And I feel like that's the whole spirit of this conference. This is the Davidic people who are after the heart of the Lord. So I've come to encourage you in what you already know and what you already are so that you would remain that to the end in Jesus' name. So these, um, these words in Psalm 27, I believe, are the essence of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Take a look at the fourth verse. Look at the first two words of the fourth verse. One thing. That's singularity. That's excluding everything else. It's actually the most exclusive you can be, one. This word, only, means a whole lot to me because it means the exclusion of everything else. To say only is really to say one thing, excluding all other things. The word only is very small, but it's very significant, especially here. One thing have I asked from the Lord. That will I seek, that one thing, singularity. I have one pursuit, one focus, one goal. I am single-minded. This is what I want. What is it? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple it's so funny he says one thing and then he says three things (laughs) are they three or are they one it is one expounded upon he says one thing what is it that he wants he wants to dwell in the presence of the Lord he wants to live his life in the presence of the Lord and that is done by beholding the beauty of the Lord and that is done by meditation upon him As you meditate upon the Lord, your eyes open. As uh, one early church writer said, meditation forms the Ark of the Covenant in the soul. As you meditate upon the word of God, your eyes begin to open. It's almost as if when your eyes close in this world, they open in the other one. I begin to meditate upon the word of the Lord. Bam, you begin to see the beauties of the Lord, and that's how you dwell in his presence. It's a conscious awareness of his wonderful presence. So what the Lord is saying, I believe even tonight, is that you are a Davidic people who have one thing on their mind, one focus, and only people. Uh, There's an an incredible book written by a woman that I respect highly by the name of Martha Kilpatrick. And the book is called Only. And she, she says in the very first chapter that in order for Christ to be all, he must be only. And the reason why people don't find Christ as all is because he's not only. But if Christ be only, he'll be all. And and you think about this statement and you say, how can Christ be all? I, I don't get it. How can Christ be all? There's many things in life. How can they all be put in a funnel and come out at the bottom? Jesus. How is that even possible? Well, let's just take a look for a second at what, what this looks like. Turn to Colossians chapter one. Just want to read a couple of scriptures to give it a groundwork and we'll we'll see how it all comes together. Colossians chapter one, listen to these words. He talking of Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to see God? Look at Jesus. <laughs> he makes God visible. Praise God. He says here. Uh, The firstborn of all creation. Some people get this mixed up and think that this means that Jesus was created. No, it means that he who created everything entered into the things he created. So he's the greatest of all things in the creation. Does that make sense? He's superior to everything that's created when he comes into his creation because he created it. That's all it's saying. He's the highest seat. <laughs> and that's so it goes here, and it says, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether they're uh, uh, on the earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Do you see? It's all been created by him, and the purpose of it is for himself, You say, Eric, what are you pointing this out for? Because this is why he can be only and all. This is how, because he is this massive and this all-inclusive. He is the full delectable spread. Everything that you need in one. He has made it so simple. Everything that is needed is in one. How gladly exchange the many for the one, wouldn't you? Because in the one, we have all. A.W. Tozer said, when when a man finds God, he's not looking for anything because he's found it. (laughs) In, In God, we have everything. So when we say only, we mean that he, he himself, he's more important than anything else, whether it be angels or, or whether it be giftings or promises or blessings. He's better than all these things. When we say only, we mean that not even my wife, not even my kids, not even my friends, not even my family can compare to this one who gives me everything that is needed in one. When when I, when we say all and only, we, we, We put our hearts together with David when he says, Who in the skies is comparable to you? Who among the sons of the mighty is like you? You are God greatly feared in the council of the holy, far above all who surround you. Who is like the Lord? Say, Eric, what's your point tonight? We want to be after his heart. We want to continue to remain after his heart. That's going to be only accomplished when we have him as everything. And that having him as everything is only if he's only if he is the one thing. And I just, I can feel, even as I was praying for you guys earlier, I can feel how God longs to be longed for. He seeks to be sought. He waits to be wanted. I can, I can just feel it in my, in my bones. See, even living in the midst of this world and we're faced with all kinds of situations, it seems like, Every situation in my life, I'm sure it's this way in your life too, every situation I I come to, I'm brought to a place where I have to face whether or not God is really enough for me. It doesn't matter what the situation is, what the end of that road is, is, is God enough for me? Is Is he really just, is he enough for me just theoretically? Is he enough for me just theologically? Or is he enough for me actually? Is it an experiential reality that God is all? Or is it just the theological? Is it just the theoretical? See, we we often collect things along the way. I wrote a couple of them down, like competitions or comparisons or frustrations or disappointments, offenses, hurts, betrayals. Oh, questions, unbelief. We collect these things sometimes along the way. We don't even realize we've grabbed them. But every single one of these situations, no matter what the nature of it, brings us face to face with whether or not this be true. God is all to me. Most of our confusion, I believe, that we have in the Christian church and the lack of joy that's in the Christian church and the lack of peace that's in the Christian church or even like in our lives, these different moments in our lives where we lack joy or lack peace or lack satisfaction or we feel confused. It's just evidence that somewhere we have not let God be everything. And so if we seek our satisfaction in other things, we are testifying to the world, he's not enough. But if we are one thing people, who say, this is the one thing that I want. I want to live in your presence oh, by looking at your beauty, by meditating upon you, keeping you before me at all times, everything underneath you. I, I, I keep finding in my life that God brings me to these places where he wants to reveal something to me. It's almost like he taps me on my shoulder in life, and he says, come with me, I want to show you something. And then when we get to the end, he just show, turns around, and he's like, it's me. And then he says, follow me again. I want to show you something new. You walk with him. And then he goes, ready? (laughs) It's me. (laughs) Again and again, he just wants to continually show himself to us as our singular possession and yet our universal solution. I feel like he watches sovereignly over every detail of your life and every detail of my life to see if we'll let him in as all again and again and again. We have this choice that I'm talking about, to be a people after his heart. We have this choice. It is ever and always before us to let go of all others and have him or hold on to others and have them. This choice is always there in front of us. He will not force us, but he, 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 he loves to wait and just see. What, you're, what, we're, what we're doing and what's important to our hearts, hoping that soon enough we'll get tired enough and remember him. <laughs> I don't know if you've been through that, but I've been through that many times where I just couldn't find where I was, what's going on, Lord, where are you? And then all of a sudden, I just get tired of my own efforts and my own strivings and I just, <sighs> tired. And then I just remember, come to me, oh, ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll be your rest for you. You know, it's funny that rest simply to me is this Jesus saying, come to me, and I'll do the rest. <laughs> so he, he seems to be waiting and watching, and actually like the, like the bridegroom in Song of Solomon, peering through the lattice, looking for you, and reaching his hand through the door. Anything that he can find, I love that portion in the scripture where it says that the bridegroom comes to the windows. Windows, plural. In other words, he doesn't just come to one window, she's not home, I'm leaving. He goes to every window. She's got to be here looking for you in every window of your life, trying to find where, where are you? I desire to have you completely, reaching his hand through the lattice in hopes that he will awaken the memory of his goodness to us. I love that portion of Song of Solomon. He, she won't wake up. Her, her heart is numb. She doesn't feel anymore. She's laying down. She's sleeping. She, she's satisfied with her life, and, and she's lost her satisfaction in him. And he reaches his hands through, hands through, as, as one last attempt to get her attention. As if, if she can just see my hand, she'll remember me. You see, what's the significance of the hand? Maybe it's the nail pierced hands. Maybe oil dripped through the hole in his hand. Remember how I died for you. And then when she sees his hand, you know what the Bible says? The scripture says her feelings were aroused for him. She remembers him. She remembers his goodness. She remembers that he saved her from her sins. He healed her, delivered her, set her free, that he is good in every way. She's seen it in his hands and it arouses her feelings on the inside. She gets up, praise God. (laughs) See, I feel like many times God even hides the future from us. And I think he does this on purpose because he's jealous for our attention. (laughs) Because sometimes I think if he shows us what's coming, we'll forget him and go to what's coming. And maybe that's the reason why he didn't tell Abraham where they're going. Because he didn't want to run the risk of losing his attention. I know where we're going, I got this. God says, I'm not telling you where we're going because I want to be all your attention. I'll get you there. (laughs) Praise God. Often, I I think, men replace God with God's goals. I've seen this happen many times, but he's jealous for all, he's jealous for all our hearts. Even even the things that he has promised, he doesn't want to share the the throne with. You say, how, how how can you separate the two? Well, you look at Abraham and you see that all the promises God made to Abraham are in his son. And God sees one day when he goes to look down and make that precious, intimate eye contact that he used to have with Abraham, he looks down to see if they can have that love exchange that they used to have. And then when he looks at Abraham, Abraham's not looking at him anymore. He's looking at his son. And God says, this is a problem. As A.W. Tozer says, he wanted to save him from an uncleansed love. Take your boy up to the mountain and kill him. Why? Because I sit on this throne, unchallenged in the heart. So I think think that God was trying to save Abraham from cheating on him with the things he gave him. I find this often happening in the midst, but the Holy Spirit, I pray, will even tonight help us to recognize that he is all and all can be found in this man, Christ Jesus. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he is unto us wisdom and sanctification. He is unto us righteousness. He is all the things needed in one. Praise God. And if we see this and believe this, then we'll stop trying to get him to do something or him for him to prove something. And we'll just enjoy and bask in what he is. And that's what I want to point at tonight. I think that's the essence of a Davidic heart. So the thing that intrigues me most in history as I look at things is, is this love relationship that you can see God has with different men in the Bible. Like, for instance, he has this love relationship with Abraham. He calls Abraham his friend. He calls, he says about Job, this is crazy. He, he says about Job, there's nobody like this guy on the planet. That's crazy. It says of Moses that he was the meekest man. Of course, Moses wrote that of himself, but either way. Uh, Daniel, Daniel is said to be a man greatly loved. John is called the beloved But there's this one man in the Bible that has a unique description to everybody else. And it is this man named King David. God calls him the one that he sought out. I have sought for myself. He's for me. He's for me. I've sought for myself this one because his heart is after my heart. And so this man's life can be summed up in this one statement. He is a man after God's heart. You could probably condense a a man's life in a volume, maybe two volumes, but when you see David, you see his whole life is summed up in one sentence. He's after God's heart. All David did, all David was, all David accomplished is summed up in that wonderful phrase, a man after God's heart, and that's our message tonight, is after God's heart, David longing for God. I mean, his journal reads crazy things like this. My soul pines for you. I mean, think about the word pines. If you look it up, it means to suffer out of desire. I want you so bad, Lord. I'm, I'm, I'm in, as David Brainerd says, I have a pleasing pain. <laughs> Makes my soul thirst after God. He's longing for God. That's Davidic. That's after his heart. That's singularity. That's only and all. That's God owning the heart because the heart wants God. As the old Puritan once wrote, the heart alone sees God, and God alone sees the heart. They look at each other. God doesn't speak Spanish or English or or whatever. He speaks heart. And this is what we see, he's longing, he's longing. He, we also see this aching that's on the inside of him that is his soul thirsts for God. He says, my soul thirsts for you, my soul's satisfied with you, my soul clings to you. It, and even in Psalm 42, he says, uh, my, my soul pants for you. It's an audible hunger, it's coming out of me. I remember John G. Lake, it was said that John G. Lake was so hungry for God that he'd be walking down the street, he'd begin to think about the Lord and he couldn't contain the yearning for God on the inside of him and he would yell out on the street corner, oh God. That's incredible to me. That really is a man after God's heart. I wonder if God would put a fresh burning on the inside of us to long for Him. I wonder if oh, being at work, you'll have to steal away for a couple of minutes to just weep some tears of love. I wonder if while you're driving, you have to pull over to the side of the road because you can't see through your tears because your heart just saying, Oh, I just, uh, uh, that kind of thing that's after God's heart clinging to him. His heart was so taken by God, even as I mentioned last time, last night, his heart was so taken with God that sometimes his logic seemed to be suspended. <laughs> For instance, they, they say things to him like, you know, I'm going to kill you, we're going to destroy you, and yet he's transfixed. He's unable to be affected by the pressures of the world, because he is completely not denying that things are going on. He's just preoccupied, praise God. Even in opposition, he's preoccupied with God. He doesn't deny, again, that things are going on. That's, that's denial. But you recognize that things are going wrong, but they're inferior to him. His attention is captivated. He's unable to hold his attention on whatever's going on because of the beauty of the Lord in his eyes. David is a man who has God as all. David is a man who finds God as all because God is the only thing to him. We can only experience God as everything, as I was saying, until he's only thing. And maybe that's what's causing so many uh, of our lives to be to look for other things. Maybe the lack of joy in our lives is indicative of some area that wants something else. Maybe that's what causes peace to be here and there, here and there, become elusive even sometimes, because our hearts can't say only. It's the additions that bring subtractions. I remember, A.W. Tozer wrote, "God needs to deliver us from the A and D, the and, the I love God and it's to the love of God only that causes you say. Does that mean I can't love my wife? No, no. You love your wife through God. <laughs> Praise God. So he says this in Psalm 73: I have no desire but you. That's." that's one-hearted. David, a man after God's own heart. I believe that if we look where the statement comes from, the man after God's own heart will understand even more what it means. And that's where I want to really emphasize tonight. Looking at where the statement comes from, why did God say, I have sought for myself a man who is after my heart? The context will make the thing shine. The statement itself by itself carries weight, but when you put it in its context, it glows. And what that, con- that context is, is this. is Once upon a time, there was a man named Saul. And this guy, Saul, the scripture says of him that, that uh, Samuel was God's extension on the earth, and he kisses Saul. And God's rule comes upon Saul. The spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul in 10.6. He speaks for God. He's changed into another man. 10.7, it says God is with him. 10.9, it says that supernatural signs happened and his heart was changed and in alignment with the word of God. We see this man Saul. In 10.10, 10, it says the spirit of God comes upon him and the people take notice of the spirit on his life. This is Saul. The scripture says that God publicly endorses him. 10.16, Saul doesn't even tell people about the position that God gives him. That's the kind of man he is. He doesn't even uh, talk about the testimony of the power of God on his life because he's not trying to draw any attention to himself. Saul, who has been so touched by God, he will not promote himself. That's where he's at. This is in chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 21, Saul's hiding from the exaltation as king among the people. He's not even looking to be recognized by men. This is what Saul's like. I remember when I was reading this with my daughter, we were reading, and she's listening about Saul, and she's just like, wow, he's a really amazing guy. I said, yeah, yeah, he, he is, but let's keep reading. <laughs> the Lord had chosen him. He stood out, not just physically, but he was unique among the people. 10.26 says, valiant men whose hearts God had touched rallied around him. Saul's gathering people to himself by the power of God. 10.27, worthless men speak out against Saul and he won't even stick up for himself. He remains quiet. This is a different guy. 10, or sorry, 11 verse 6 and 11, it says that the spirit of the Lord came upon Saul mightily to deliver the people in a supernatural way. God's using him. Verse 13, Saul stands up for those who spoke against him and he spares their lives. The people that spoke, he spares their lives. This is the kind of guy that Saul is. Verse 15 or, or 13, verse four, news about him spread everywhere. God's power is on his life. It seems that Saul is favored, anointed, touched and he's empowered. Then chapter 13 comes. Everything looks like Saul is a G. He's the man. He knows God, and he's just like what God's looking for until something comes. It's called pressure. A lot of people can keep up the show for a while, and God comes upon people, and they have anointing, and they have giftings, and these things, and it looks great to men, but when a little bit of pressure comes, that's when you start seeing what's on the inside. You know, Gladstone used to tell us that if you squeeze an orange you get orange juice because that's what's on the inside. When you squeeze your spirit, man, if you're filled with God, God comes out. What is it Corey ten Boom said that if you're full of sweetness, whenever people jar you, only sweetness will come over. <laughs> what's on the inside? So 1 Samuel thirteen five. the enemy comes with a great army. The army's 10 times the sizes of his army. And look at this, this is where Saul changes. The pressure changes. There's nothing like pressure to expose if God is really enough for us. There's nothing like pressure to actually show you where your, your situation is. I remember reading Samuel Rutherford said that a barrel may look like it's full until you knock on it. The sound it makes shows you there's nothing in there. So some people may look like they're full, but God knocks on you just to show you where you're at. Sometimes you think you're full. Until God knocks a little bit on you and say, man, you're a little empty. (laughs) So pressure comes. See, we may tell everyone that our eyes are only on the Lord. We may do things that look like our eyes are only on the Lord. But we have our true motives exposed when pressure comes and God is silent. So Saul surrounded commotions going on. There's people, they're all looking to him. He's the leader. And I'm telling you right now, what you choose to do when God is silent is the greatest exposing of what really has all of your attention. What you choose to do when that pressure comes, that shows what really does have all your heart and your heart's affection. Under pressure, Saul could only see his present situation and he cries to God for deliverance. You know, Hosea eleven seven says this, my people call out to me for deliverance, but they don't worship me. <laughs> what a scripture. God's saying, here they are. They're crying out to me, but they won't adore me. I don't mean anything to them. They want my hands. They don't want my heart. And we see David's different than this. So many people want to be instantaneously delivered from everything so they don't have to actually long for his heart. Oh, how, how uh, we, we keep coming face to face in our lives with this question. Is he only? Is he all? Is he everything? See, Saul looked for deliverance. He was not looking to the Lord. He looked to deliverance, not the Lord. <laughs> God also says in Hosea, he says, I will be your deliverance. He doesn't say, hey, I'm gonna break you off some deliverance. Take some deliverance and go. Okay, take your deliverance and go. You got your deliverance? Good. No, no, no. He's not trying to dispense deliverance. He wants to be deliverance, which means the deliverance is dependent upon his personhood, his person, not the things that he just does. So in other words, you leave the person, you left deliverance. This is why people return to bondage over and over and over and over and over again, because I thought they thought that deliverance was just something gifted to them. Yes, it is gifted in the man himself, praise God. So God let the host encamp against him to expose that, that thing. What is it? That thing that you, could, you couldn't see on the outside. He let the pressure come to show what was on the inside. See, Saul's attention was elsewhere. He desired other things, namely what we thought he didn't want, which is the esteem of people. <laughs> to only want him means the exclusion of all other things. That's what waiting on God really is. It's sustained exclusion of other things. And we practice, we practice that in prayer by excluding other things and just him, just him. So we have, as John Owen says, we have no power from God until we live under the persuasion that we have no power of our own. And that's what only means. Only you, Lord, not my own strength, only you. And so we see this in David as the man after God's own heart. It's important to understand that waiting itself is not powerful. It is God that's powerful. Waiting is only as powerful as the one you're waiting on. The power is in God. You remember Isaiah 40? It says all these wonderful things about God that he doesn't get tired, he runs, and he's not weary. He, he walks and he doesn't faint. And then it says those that wait. Then it says the same things. They run and don't go away. They walk. In other words, God actually becomes their empowerment with his own strengths. He gives them to the one who waits. Waiting passes God into your being. Yeah, and waiting is this, the exclusion sustained, exclusion of other things, just you, God. Once there's a multiplicity, it's no longer waiting. Waiting is singular, you, God. What does David say in Psalm 62? He says, My soul waits in silence for God alone. God alone. So Saul's impatience was the ultimate act of independence. See, choosing to be attentive to God is the opposite of self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency is the opposite of being attentive to God. Does that make sense to you? The more that we look to ourselves in our own power, that is indicating that we are not looking to the Lord himself. And that's what we see Saul is doing. But the thing is, is that nothing is so opposed to God as self-sufficiency. Nothing. As a matter of fact, only God's enemies are not dependent upon him. In other words, you turn your dependency looks to God. Independence turns your back on God. Saul turns his back on God because of pressure because his heart wasn't completely God's. Maybe, maybe Saul was disappointed in God. Maybe God didn't do something the way he thought he should do it. How many of you fall into that category before? Maybe it's because things didn't go the way Saul thought, so he just gets in under pressure. But no matter the reason of what's going on, the statement of his life is that God is not enough for me. When the pressure comes, he declares by his actions, God's not enough for me. How often the pressure that comes upon us reveals what is really in our hearts. But to wait and to be attentive to God is is to testify to the world and to to God that he has all your heart, that your heart is completely after him in pressure and persecution, or or even with the, the comments of people, come what may, for him you wait all the day. That's a Davidic heart. Walter Butler said, to hurry God is to find fault with him. And and Saul's hurrying God. Why? Because he finds fault with him. Why? Because he can't see him accurately. Why? Because he doesn't have all his heart. The scriptures tell us that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Your heart sees the Lord. And if the heart isn't completely seeing the Lord, it sees something that you make to be the Lord. Idols are fashioned by hearts that are not wholly His. The unsatisfied heart is an idol factory. It just creates them. I mean, I, th- I think about this. Uh, the, the kind of dependency that I feel like the Lord is wanting to talk to us about in going after God's heart. Even not not only for, well, let's say it like this: going after God's heart for God and not even for deliverance. Though He does deliver and He can deliver and He He will deliver, but not even, that's not even in the, the scope of things. What is Waiting in our hearts, what we're waiting in our hearts for is God himself to want God and to have God. That's the heart of David. I mean, think about the three Hebrew boys that go into the flame. You remember this story in Daniel? They throw them in the fire, but before they do, check this out. They say when they are tested to divide their hearts to save their lives, they say, God is able to deliver us. Then they say, God will deliver us. But then they say, but even if he don't, we're not going sub- to divide our hearts. You know, That's a kind of faith that I believe is wholehearted, which means I do believe that God is able. That's one level of faith and one level of a whole heart. But there's another level of a whole heart that says, I know he can and I know he will. But then there's an even greater heart surrender that says, I know he can and I know he will. But even if he does not deliver me, I will not divide my heart. Praise God. That's what we see in the Hebrew boys. And I believe that's what the Davidic heart is. When God is enough, we're emptied of ul- ulterior motives, personal ambitions, selfish intentions, our own devices, our own devi- desires. There, We're emptied of them. It means that God is the only thing that matters anymore. As Mother Bessalia Schlink said, if you are here, what more can I want? Having you, I have all. Brother Lawrence wrote, I don't know what the future holds, but in him I'm so serene, it doesn't even matter. That kind of a heart, a holy complacency, as the old church used to say. We we say complacency these days as a what do you call it? A a negative word. Like you're complacent, bro. But the early church would talk about holy complacency, meaning I'm so satisfied with God. Take me wherever you want. Do whatever you want to me. Send me wherever you wish. I have you, and that's everything. That's a holy complacency. Gladly giving up the many for just the one. Saul is not this way. He is weighed down by his own ambitions, by his own determinations, by his own expectations. He's looking at his own reputation. He needs explanations, and he forgets adoration. You see, the need to keep all our attention on God alone is home to some people and misery to others. It's all dependent on where the heart is. See, the heart that's divided hates waiting on God. The heart that is undivided is home waiting on God because they already have everything they've ever needed in Him. So that contentment is the reality of that person's life because God is their content. I have Him. I have, yeah, he may, he may deliver me, he may not, but I have him, and that's everything to me. See, waiting in pressure, trials, afflictions, persecutions, even difficulties, they strip us down to what I like to call naked trust. I just, I just trust you. It, it, these things that happen to us, we all have been through things, and we're probably gonna go through more things. Maybe you're in the middle of one right now. Recognize it as something that has been sent to strip you down, to naked trust, to reduce you to only him because it's the greatest place there is anyways because men don't acquire faith. They're reduced to it. I need you, God. That's everything. The only other other thing that we see in Saul is that he's important to himself. (laughs) See, David is, God is important to him. Corey ten Boom once wrote, you cannot truly say, God is all I want until he's all you have. But I think, in all honesty, I believe that we can choose such stripping. It's called spiritual espousals, as the early church would say. In other words, marriage to the Lord, forsaking all others, keeping only to thee. Marrying the Lord is excluding everybody else but him. That's marriage to the Lord. So, We're created, we were created for this. That's why you'll find the most joy here, you'll find the most peace here, the most satisfaction here in singularity. If your eye be single, Jesus says, your whole body will be full of light. He says, (laughs) what an incredible image. I'm gonna fill your whole body up with light if your eye is on only me. What does the scripture say in Psalm 34? They that look to him, that's singular, it's him. Him are radiant, they're filled with light. And that light is joy and peace. It's the, it's the world to come here. Taste it. You become, as God is your one heart desire, you become a window to the world to come. People can peer into the next world through your life because you're, you're alive with him. You're, you're, you see, you weren't made for spouses. You weren't made for kids. You weren't made for deeds or jobs or achievements. You weren't made for even spiritual blessings. You were made for him. Primarily, ultimately, him. And then from that place, you're able to be a wife, be a husband, love your kids, be a good friend, be faithful. All that stuff flows from having him that you've been made for. See, Saul couldn't experience God as all because he didn't want God only. Can I just go a couple more minutes? Is that okay? Are Are you guys okay with this? Seriously, if anybody was like, dude, I'm done, just tell me. Okay, just a couple more minutes. Okay. I just feel like I got to get to the, the, the. the <laughs> you know, sometimes. <laughs> 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 She's going to throw a shoe at me. <laughs> okay, so many times God will stand still just to see if you're going to keep on walking. Now, the reason why he does this is to see if you are giving him all your attention or if something else has taken his place of attention. He does this all the time. He'll walk and then he'll just stop and see if you keep going. But if you're attentive to him, he stops, you stop. What are we doing? Because <laughs> he, he has all your attention, praise God. You know what's interesting is before Jesus teaches abiding in John chapter 15, the last verse in John chapter 14, the scripture says, he says to them, get up, let's go, abide in me. The imagery is that they get up and they're walking together step by step. And then he says, let me teach you about abiding while you abide. This is how you walk with me, abide in me. (laughs) I thought the imagery was just so perfectly placed in the scriptures. Get up, let's go from here. Walk with me, praise God. See, um, the root of all Saul's issue is that he didn't give all his heart to the Lord. But in 1 Samuel 13, 9 through 12, we see that Saul had gotten anxious. Anxiety is getting out of sync with God. You know, listen, anxiety is the seed of atheism. You say, What is atheism? Atheism says there is no God. Anxiety is the very beginning of thinking there is no God. And fear. Is really an assault on God's character. Do you, know, do, you know, do you know who He is? And you're afraid. It's 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 almost like when your kid wants to jump in the pool and they're afraid to jump in. And you're like, I totally got you. Why are you why are you afraid? Because you're so superior to them and you can catch them and you can hold them and you can keep them safe, but they're afraid. And you're wondering and almost offended. Like, are you think I would let you? Fear is an assault on God's character as the Father. Praise God. So Saul fears the people. This is what happens when God hasn't captivated your heart. People mean a lot more than they're supposed to. (laughs) He was more aware of people's opinions than God's opinion. But God must be more valuable to us than our own names. Saul is intoxicated with his own legacy before the people that he, quote, forces himself to sacrifice to the Lord without the Lord. So he's still doing things externally, but he's doing them without the Lord. Side note, that's the essence of religion, service to the Lord without looking at the Lord. Even the right thing without God is evil. Because the thing that God, remember, remember what? Uh, Paul says, he says, yet not I, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What's he saying? He's saying the life that I live is no longer me, it's him. The I is completely gone. It is no longer I. It's Christ. Which means even if you could obey God on your own, it wouldn't please him because he's only pleased by Jesus. So the eye goes out. The old Paul, the new Paul, both gone. Christ lives. That's what matters, is the man Christ lives. But but this is not what Saul's doing. Saul is still in the equation. That's why there's a problem. But when your heart is completely God's, you don't have it to move anymore or, or arrange. See, when you give your heart to somebody, you don't have it to give it to anything else anymore. It's gone. I've given my heart to you, Lord. How can I give it to another? I don't even have it. I gave it to you. That's what David is doing. I gave you my heart. So he's losing people. He's losing followers. He's trying to save his face. Listen closely. We always seek to save our faces when we stop seeking the Savior's face. <laughs> Praise God. Keith Green, in his great song, said, it's so hard to see when my eyes are on me. 1 <laughs> Samuel thirteen thirteen. Samuel shows up. Oh, I love Samuel. He shows up and he says, this is foolishness. Give me that sword. <laughs> See, Samuel, then at that moment, so Samuel, Samuel steps up. He says, this is foolish. What you're doing, Saul, is foolishness. Your heart doesn't completely belong to God. And because of that, you've done all this stuff. You're antsy. You're all over the place. Give me that sword. The very next verse is where our wonderful statement comes from. I have sought for myself a man that is after my own heart. Which means everything we just talked about with Saul, the opposite is in King David. (laughs) Everything we just talked about, Saul, we see that to David, God is going to be enough. The one who loves him enough to look at him. David is the one who loves him enough to wait for him. David chooses such nakedness as trust in God and no other thing. The nakedness of putting everything else away and only wanting him. One thing have I desired, it's just him. So the picture would suggest that Saul's heart rose in pride in public while David's was adoring in private. Does that make sense? Saul's looking for fame out in front of people, but David is alone. With the Lord. See, Saul had the people's attention. David had God's attention. How many of you are after God's attention? See, Leonard Ravenhill once said If you have the smile of God, what does it matter if you have the frown of men? But if you have the frown of God, what does it matter if you have the smile of men? Saul had the people's attention. David had God's attention. That's what really matters. So God's heart was drawn by the melodies of love rising from this shepherd boy's heart of love and adoration. In David, God found someone who was, quote, watch this, 1526, verse 15, verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 26. God says, I found somebody better than you. <laughs> Can you believe that? That, he, that God would even say that. I got somebody who's better than you. Why? Because his heart did not belong to him, but David's did. Wow, that to me is... That's alarming, isn't it? The wonderful thing about knowing about David isn't that we would just know there once was a man named David. It's so that you can aspire to be that man also. What does that mean? It means you can choose to give all your heart to the Lord, or you can choose, like Saul, to withhold it from him. It's very interesting to me that the very situation that Saul found himself in, the very situation Saul found himself in, where a host encamps against him, David writes about in Psalm 27. And this is where we'll close the final bit. So we started with Psalm 27 and we're gonna end with Psalm 27. Maybe the crew can come up. But remember what we just talked about. Saul started good when the host encamps against him. What does he do? He crumbles. David writes in Psalm 27, He writes, though a host encamps against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me. In spite of this, I will be confident. One thing have I desired or asked from the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. You see, Saul had pressure, and it crumbled him. David had pressure, and his confidence was in this. I only want you, God. And that is a Davidic people. That's a people whose heart is completely after the Lord. And so my encouragement to you tonight with all these variables that I've put out is to put them all down into one thing, which is this. Let's choose tonight fresh that all, every corner, piece, cavern of our hearts would be completely given to God because I prophesy to you, pressure's coming pressure is coming. And when that pressure comes, if your heart is not his, you will crumble. But if your heart can be given to God, when pressure comes, you'll say, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life.